good to be with you guys uh, in this new year. It's been, uh, it's been a whole year since we've been together, so it's good to be back together. Uh, you might have been wondering if you didn't see it in the e-news, but we, as you know, that last uh, week before Christmas and during Christmas Eve, we were uh, inviting us as a community to give towards our refugee uh, initiative to try and uh, bring these uh, refugees that we had been hearing about uh, that week uh, over to Canada, and we did a special offering towards that on our Christmas Eve. And I am so thrilled uh, to let you know that we raised $42,000 on Christmas Eve to go towards that initiative. So thank you so much uh, for giving towards that. And we look forward, we look forward to taking uh, next steps uh, towards that uh, in the coming weeks. And throughout the year, as we mentioned, it'll be a little bit of a process. So uh, this morning, we are starting 2024 uh, with a new series called Reconstruction, Questioning Your Faith Without Losing It. And uh, so this whole idea of reconstruction, uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, perhaps uh, this, this will help as a little bit of an introduction as we head into the series, uh, but it's actually in response to something that's been referred to as deconstruction. Uh, and so deconstruction uh, has been a word that's been tossed around for quite a few years now, and uh, I've been aware of it, and uh, people that have gone through or, or have said, I'm going through a season of deconstruction, as you will see as we go, um, uh, I'll tell you that I've gone through se- seasons of deconstruction in my own life, and, uh, and it's been such a buzzword, uh, not even just a buzzword, but it's been a movement in the Western church in particular. Uh, this is very unique to the Western world, uh, that I thought it was time that we actually talked about this a little bit, and so this is how we're kicking off 2024. Uh, and so what is deconstruction? Just from a high level, as we begin this series, what is it all about? And roughly speaking, deconstruction is the dismantling of anything that's been constructed before it, right? So you had something that was constructed, and a deconstruction is the process of taking that thing apart. In architecture, it's building, uh, you know, you have a building that's been constructed, and then you demolish that building. That would be deconstructing the building. Uh, Any of you guys watch those baking shows? Okay, so a deconstructed pie, you know, that's like the pieces of a pie not in a pie, right? So it's just kind of like, you know, they get creative and uh, same ingredients, but completely different presentation. Uh, In child's play, if they're building Lego, deconstruction is, you know, throwing that Lego apart and all seeing all the pieces fly around. Uh, Deconstruction describes many different aspects of things that we do in life where there's been a building or construction of something of sort, and then we go and we dismantle it, we take the pieces apart. But the word deconstruction is now being used more broadly in literature and philosophy, representing the dismantling of traditional cultural values, norms, ideologies. And most notably, uh, this was uh, kind of brought onto the scene by French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Now, Jacques Derrida was a uh, French philosopher in the late 1960s. Uh, For him, deconstruction was a strategy for mindfully examining language, exposing the ways in which language is hiding ulterior motives, uh, how language is used to smuggle in uh, different agendas outside of that which is presenting that there was something behind it. Uh, And so for Derrida... 
there was nothing in language and spoken words that could actually be 100% trusted. Uh, there was always hidden motives and meanings behind the language, and so what was being presented wasn't always the surface value, or wasn't ever the surface value of what was actually meant. And so the pendulum swung so far in this philosophical thought that the movement kind of moved towards basically saying that there is nothing that is said or spoken where you can actually find the true meaning, the root meaning behind what is being said. And so everything was up for deconstruction. Everything was up for analysis and trying to figure out what were the ulterior motives or what was going on behind the spoken word or the written word. And there was always something more going on. So theological deconstruction. So, so, so Derrida kind of, he started this and it kind of created, it was a, a big part of the movement towards what we refer to now as postmodernism. And we'll talk about that more as the series go. But theological dis- Deconstruction, as such, is the process of dismantling one's accepted beliefs. The beliefs or the theology, so theology is just a fancy word for saying how we think about God. So uh, everybody's a theologian. Everybody has thoughts about God. Even if you're an atheist, you're a theologian because you have certain ideas about God. Uh, And so theological deconstruction is dismantling the accepted beliefs or the things that I once believed about God. And deconstruction seems to be a methodology that really has no end game. And because nothing can ever be trusted, you deconstruct and you deconstruct and you deconstruct. And it it, it actually ends up being a journey into endless cynicism. And if we move this away from the theological conversation, you can see actually the impact of what this has meant in our culture, where nothing can be trusted, especially people who have power cannot be trusted. Anybody who has authority can't be trusted. This is actually a pendulum swing out of this philosophical thought, out of the postmodern movement. So deconstruction in the Western world, again, I'll say that again, in the Western world, is our new norm. Nearly 60% of people who were raised in a Christian home that came to faith uh, as a child deconstruct and leave their faith following high school. And so these aren't just numbers. These, these uh, stats, you know, the 60% stat, those numbers have faces. You know these faces. They're your brothers and sisters, your children, your spouse, your parents, they're you, they're me. We all have stories of deconstruction. Now, I've called the series Reconstruction because I believe, and it's my conviction, that deconstruction, when po- properly understood, is not something we need to be afraid of. In fact, deconstruction was, long, was here long before Derrida ever coined it and called it that. It's actually been a part of faith from the very beginning. We're using the term reconstruction not because we're trying to undo or stop deconstruction, but only because we're trying to put deconstruction in its proper place. The thesis of kind of this whole sermon series we're going to head into is that deconstruction is a step, and I would even say a necessary and inevitable step on the greater journey of faith. It's not the end result. It is actually one step on a journey of faith. So some of you right now are going through what you would coin or refer to as deconstruction, and maybe you didn't have a word for it, and now you do, and you can say, oh yeah, that describes me. Some of you have gone through it, and some of you will go through it. So when you think about, you know, why are we talking about this? Well, you're either going through it, you have gone through it, you're going to go through it, uh, 
And if it's part of faith, then let's, let's, uh, let's talk about it. And some of you, at the very least, are friends with people, are married to someone, are parents of, or children of, someone who is going through this experience right now. So if you're with us on Christmas Eve, you could see today as a kind of a part B of Christmas Eve. Uh, and so for those of you who weren't here on Christmas Eve, let me just give you a very, very quick overview. We looked at the text in, cha- in, in chapter 2 of Luke, of the Christmas story, of the story of Mary in particular, of her experience in the Christmas story. And we kind of ended up narrowing down and zeroing in on this first. When they had seen him, referring to the shepherds, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child because the angels had revealed this news about Jesus and who he was. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And there's kind of three words that we looked at on Christmas Eve. And the first word was amazed. So the, uh, the people that heard the shepherd's testimonies about what the angels had said. And the, the angels had said that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the king. That he was the son of God. Uh, the angels had declared this. And the shepherds told people that this is what had happened. They encountered these angels. The angel said this. And then it says that everybody was amazed at what they heard. And this word amazed means amused. It means entertained. And at first we don't think anything of it. But the word but in the sentence, but Mary treasured up all these things, tell us that the word amazed is actually being contrasted with the words that describe Mary's response to what the angels had said. And so some people were amused and entertained. And so we talked about on Christmas Eve how Jesus actually did not show up to entertain us. Jesus didn't show up like Russell Crowe looking to entertain us. And when we look to be entertained by Jesus, we will inevitably be disappointed by him. When we look to be amused, when we look to be... uh, you know, comforted uh, in a very consumeristic sense by Jesus, we will always be disappointed. And this is contrasted to Mary's response. So some people were amazed, they were entertained, they were amused. That's interesting. But Mary, it says, treasured all of these things that she heard that the angels had said. And the word treasure means to cling to, to grab hold of, not let go of. And it says she pondered them in her heart. And the word pondered here means to wrestle or to fight or to be in conflict with. So these two ideas, this is Mary looking back at her life. She says, I heard this and I treasured the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king, that he was the son of God. And it doesn't mean that she understood it, but she treasured it. And throughout her life, it meant that she would ponder it. She would have to wrestle with it. She would have conflict with it. But no matter how hard it was to believe sometimes, no matter how many doubts that she had, she treasured it and she clung to it, even though there was times where she had to wrestle with it. This is what it's telling us. And so this story in Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, is not the last time that we read that Mary treasured something in her heart. The story continues beyond the Christmas story. So Jesus was born probably around the year 5 to 6 B.C., He began his ministry in the year probably 28 AD, and he was about 31 to 32 at the time. And we have this gap in the account of Jesus. We have this record of when, of the Christmas story of when he was born. We know something up until about the age of two, and we know that Jesus was two when the, around two years old when the Magi came. And sorry to break your Christmas nativity Bible, the Magi weren't there. The three kings weren't there. There actually wasn't three kings. Whatever they were, weren't there. 
uh, on Christmas Eve or on that night that Jesus was born. Uh, they came about two years later after a journey. Uh, and so we, we kind of have that story up till the time that Jesus was two. And then Herod sends his death squads and they escape to Egypt until 4 BC. And at 4 BC, they move back to Na- Nazareth. And so what happened in the years between when Jesus was a baby or two years old, a little toddler, and when he started his public ministry at the age of 30? We almost know nothing about that time in Jesus' life. And some people, you know, have these different theories that he went to Africa or he went to China or he went to India or, you know, somewhere. Uh, no, Jesus grew up as a good Christian uh, Jewish boy. Uh, he grew up as a good Jewish boy. And he, uh, and he was growing up in the family business. He would have worked with his dad, with his brothers, being a carpenter. And the reason that there's nothing written about it is probably because there was nothing to be written about it. He lived a very normal life. And so we don't really have any stories of Jesus' life between that toddler age and the age of 30 except for one story. One story right on the back of the Christmas story in Luke 2, the story continues. And so this is what it reads. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover when he was 12 years old and they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, um, but they were unaware of it. So Jerusalem was a big city, one of the biggest cities at the time. And once a year, the family went this long journey all the way to Jerusalem during the Passover meal where they would celebrate how God had delivered their ancestors from, the, uh, from slavery in Egypt all those years ago. And so they would celebrate this and they would remember this and they would remember this annually by going to Jerusalem to do this. And they would have gone in a whole caravan with their friends, with their family. It would have been a whole journey with lots and lots of people. So there was many people on this journey that Mary and Joseph and their family would have known. And so the story continues. Thinking he was in their company, so Mary and Joseph, thinking that Jesus was in their company, they traveled for a, for a day, and then Mary and Joseph, you know, started to have a conversation. We could probably imagine how it went. Uh, you know, Joseph saying, what's the matter, honey? And Mary says, you know, I have this terrible feeling. Joseph says, about what? That we didn't do something. Joseph says, you feel that way because we left in a hurry. We took care of everything. Mary says, did I leave, or did I turn off the coffee? Joseph says, no, but I did. Oh, okay. uh, Mary says, did you lock up everything after we left? Joseph says, yeah. Joseph, uh, Mary says, did you close the garage door? Joseph says, that's it. That's what it was. I didn't close the garage door. Mary's like, oh, no, that's not it. Joseph says, what else could we be forgetting? And then Mary in this moment says, Jesus! Sorry, it's my last Home Alone reference, I promise. Um, but they have this moment where they're talking. They're a day's journey away, and they're on their way home. And it's kind of like this Home Alone scene, and Mary and Joseph are with this whole caravan of people, the hustle and bustle, all the people that they came with. And they're going, and they're thinking everything's fine. And then they, they realize that one of the members of their family and their entourage is missing They assume that Jesus is in their midst only to realize after a day's journey away that he wasn't. And so you can imagine the terror. I can't believe we did this. What kind of parents are we? And you can imagine the horror of you as a parent if you recognize that you left your kid 
you know, a day's journey away all by themselves as a 12-year-old. That's a normal parent. Never mind if God entrusted you with the one time in history, the Messiah, the Son of God, that was going to save the world. And you're like, I screwed this up. How did I do this? God, why did you pick me? So it says, then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So they looked for him in the caravan of relatives. And then they looked for him for the next three days. They looked for him. Can you imagine? Three days looking for him. The panic that's growing with every passing day. They went back to the marketplace. They retraced their steps. We went here and then we went here and then we went here for lunch. We were by the lake. They're so going through all of these places that they were for three days. And then it says, after three days, they found him, Jesus, in the temple, in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So for three days, they searched for Jesus, and finally they go to the temple. And we don't know why they went. To, maybe they went to the temple to pray. Maybe they went for, to the temple because they needed advice on what they should do. And so they arrive at the temple, and there Jesus is sitting calmly with one of the rabbis. And you know what happens as a parent in this moment. The first reaction, you are totally, totally relieved. You're like, thank God. And it lasts for about a split second. What were you thinking? And so they're observing what's happening with Jesus, listening to him talk to the rabbis. And it says, everyone who heard him was what? Amazed at his, answer, at his understanding of his answers. Here's the same word, again, repeated. See, the same ideas in the Christmas story, and now moving into this story of Jesus as a 12-year-old, that the people were listening to him, and they too were amazed. They were amused. They were entertained. They couldn't believe you know, this 12-year-old could ask questions like that. They could answer questions like that. So Jesus amazed others, and he amused people, and he entertained people. And this would, this would occur throughout his lifetime, particularly as he started his public ministry, and he would do miracles. Repeatedly in the Gospels, we see that people were amazed, that people wanted Jesus to do more, that people wanted him to do signs and wonders. And it's important to note, though, that those people who were amazed at Jesus were not the same people that followed Jesus. Those that were amazed at Jesus weren't the same people that followed him. So when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And so Jesus then responds. And we have the first recorded words of Jesus Christ in history. And he says, why were you searching for me? So right there, Jesus was so close to getting slapped by Joseph. It was like, I could, I could see it. Like Joseph, like, what are you talking about for three days? And your response is, why were you searching for me? There's no apology. There's no sorry, dad. You know, Jesus didn't even say, you know, I told you if you would have got me an iPhone, then you could have phoned me. But no, there's none of that. Jesus says, why were you searching for me? And then he keeps going. He says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not what? understand what he was saying to them. You know, being the earthly dad of Jesus must have been a pretty tough job, don't you think? These words were not easy for Joseph and Mary to hear, and not only were they not easy, it says that they didn't understand what they were hearing. And this would not be the first time that Jesus would say something that people wouldn't understand, that they would question, that they would doubt, that they would be confused by. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother, read it with me, treasured all these things in her heart. There's a second time. 
And so Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so again, Mary treasured these things in her heart. She clung to them. She knew that something was happening, even though she couldn't understand it. She, she decided, I'm going to hold on to this. And I don't understand it. I'm confused. I'm a little bit angry that Jesus didn't come with us. Uh, but something is happening here. And there's something significant here that both perplexed Mary, but it also is something that Mary clung to. And that would be important because as her life would go, as Jesus would grow, as he would grow up from a teenager to a young man, he would continue to change. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor. And we have a hard time with this, don't we? Like we think, I I don't know what we think. I don't want to think for you. But, you know, I often think like Jesus, you know, came out of the womb and he was like, he was all of Jesus, like right away, uh, because he's God with flesh on, right? But, you know, when you realize Jesus embraced fully what it meant to be human, which means that he was a baby, which means that he couldn't talk. God himself couldn't talk. He had to learn to walk. You know, he probably had to get his diaper changed just like every other baby. He had to learn in school. The, hum- the humanity of Jesus shows us that Jesus actually had to grow. That he had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow in stature. He had to grow in favor with God and others. That Jesus was fully human. And as Jesus was growing and as Mary and Joseph were growing as parents, they would have to rethink and re-understand and re-wrestle and ponder what it actually meant for Jesus to be this treasure, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, even though they didn't understand they had so many doubts. And so the only story we have about Jesus as a young boy in his preteen years is a story about Mary and Joseph losing Jesus. Mary raised Jesus. She taught Jesus. She would have been at home with Jesus as a young boy. She knew Jesus better than anybody. She understood him, but then she lost him. And she kept searching and searching and searching, and finally she found him, but when she found him, it says that she had to treasure these things, and she didn't understand exactly what had happened, and so she had to rethink everything again. So I use this story to start our series on reconstruction as a bit of a metaphor for what I think happens to all of us. This is not unique to Mary and Joseph, the idea of losing Jesus of searching for Jesus, of finding Jesus, and rethinking everything we thought we knew about Jesus. Like Mary, some of you have lost Jesus. And before I continue, let me just be very, very, very clear. This is a perception. You haven't actually lost Jesus. You can't lose Jesus. But we have an experience of losing Jesus. And so this is a perception. Like, there's nothing more obvious than the fact that the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west It's common knowledge, except that it's not true. Yet, in our experience, living on this planet, this is what we perceive. This is what is real. And in some sense, it's very true, because this is what we're experiencing every single day. Yet, it is the absolute opposite of what's actually happening. We know that it's not the sun that's moving, but this is our perception of it. And so, in a similar way, we have these experiences, these perceptions, as we're going through life, that we're losing God, we're losing Jesus, we're losing faith, we're deconstructing And even though it seems like God is far away, and we'll talk about that more as this series goes on, he is actually not. But our perception, our experience, is what is changing. God isn't changing. 
God's presence isn't changing, but her perception and her understanding of it is. And so, like Mary, she loses Jesus. And then we move to this place of finding Jesus if we search for him, if we seek him, if we don't give up. And Mary and Joseph didn't give up. They didn't get, three, they didn't get a day on the journey and be like, oh, well, God gave us a kid and whatever. He'll figure it out. He's God. And they didn't keep going. No, they, they actually said, we're going to seek for him. We're going to seek him until we find him. In fact, that's what Jesus says, to seek first. To seek first the kingdom of God. And, and so that's a characteristic of followers of Jesus to seek Jesus, to seek God. And so Mary and Joseph, they seek Jesus out and they find him. And when they find him, something has changed, not only for Jesus, but something has actually changed more so for them. But they are having to rethink and recalibrate everything that they knew to be true up until this moment. Jesus' response is not what they were expecting. They didn't understand what was happening. They thought there was something significant happening to the point that Mary had to ponder it. But so they had to rethink and recalibrate what they thought in their own life. And so they're rethinking Jesus. Losing Jesus, finding Jesus, rethinking Jesus. And then I think when we have Jesus and we think we've got it all figured out, That's usually the beginning of the cycle again. Mary loses Jesus, finds Jesus, rethinks Jesus. And this process, this cycle, has been going on for all of history. In fact, A.J. Swoboda um, wrote a book called After Doubt, and it's a great great book. It's a book that we're going to be drawing from quite quite a bit in this series. Um, refers to it this way. He says, there's a theological construction where we're growing up, depending on your, your story, where you come from, if you grew up in the church or outside of the church in a Christian home or not, or different religion or atheist, we all have a different back, backdrop, but there's a theological cons- construction that we go through as we're growing up and we put this together, this constructed belief system. And then after that, we go through a period of deconstruction after we've put this together. And this is a natural thing that happens. And there's lots of things that happen to us or around us that cause us to go into this place of deconstruction. So perhaps there's a transition in your life. You move from one place to another. Perhaps you go from high school to college. Perhaps you go from single to married. There's all sorts of transitions that we go through that might be the reason why we actually have to go into a phase of rethinking and reevaluating everything. Perhaps there's a crisis. Perhaps there's a health crisis. Perhaps somebody close to you dies. Perhaps you know, life took a right-hand turn for whatever reason and you didn't anticipate it. You weren't planning and it wasn't in your five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan, but it happened. And it causes you to rethink and reevaluate everything. Perhaps there was an experience that you had Swoboda in his book talks about elevation experiences and valley experiences. Elevation experiences are these, you know, these great experiences where everything is going well. Uh, things are like we planned. There's success. There's uh, even maybe things beyond what we could ask or imagine that happened in our life. Uh, and then there's valley experiences, the things that we wanted to avoid that we didn't plan on happening. And it's a funny thing that elevation experiences don't send us into deconstruction often, do they? 
When really good things happen, we don't think, you know, why is all this good stuff happening to me? It's causing me a faith crisis. No, we say, thank, thank you, God, that you're so good. Uh, and so it's quite interesting that the really, really great things that happen in our life don't cause a faith crisis. We don't say, why me and not other people? But when we have a valley experience, we do. We say, why me and why not other people? Why did this have to happen to me? Maybe it's hurt, betrayal, sickness, maybe unanswered prayers. You really believed God for something. You're praying for something and somebody didn't get healed or your circumstances didn't change. These are all things in our journey of faith that push us into a place of reevaluating, of deconstructing, of rethinking, of wondering, of doubting, of questioning what we believed before that point in our life. Maybe there's certain ideas. You went to high school and you had friends and you talked to friends and they had different ideas about faith or God or science or the world or history or uh, Christianity, religion, whatever it might be. Or you went to college and, you know, they kind of dismantled and deconstructed things in your life when you're in that college class. Um, these are all things that happen in our journey of faith. And I would say where we start our faith journey and how we start our faith journey is directly related to how we will struggle and wrestle and ponder through our faith journey. If you came to faith believing that following God was going to work all things together for your good, the way that you define good, and then something happens in your life that wasn't the way that you define good, you enter into a faith crisis. If that was your assumption, your presupposition, when you came into faith, that is actually going to be the thing that you struggle with as you journey through faith. If you came to faith under a, a more of a health and wealth understanding that, you know, if I follow Jesus and he's going to heal me and I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be wealthy, that God wants to bless me and I define blessing in this way, in the way that the world defines blessing. Well, as soon as you get to a point in your life where that blessing doesn't happen, where you're not healthy, where you're not wealthy, then it causes you to question the presupposition you had in your faith and say, why did this happen to me? I thought God was going to do this and this and this. And so we create a theological construction and how we create that will actually impact the next step in our journey. And it's, I, I would say, that deconstruction is inevitable. It's inevitable. Uh, but we're, what we're trying to establish in this series is that deconstruction is not unique. And it's not the end of faith. In fact, as we'll see in a second, it's a sign that you actually have faith. And it's one step in the ongoing journey. And so after deconstruction... Swoboda says we move into an area of reconstruction where we have to put together the pieces that we have and what we understand and now reconstruct a new theological construction. And this is the way our faith moves. Now, you know, Swoboda wrote this book recently, but this isn't actually anything different than people have been saying throughout history. J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a follower of Jesus and a Christian, you know, from the Lord of the Rings, um, he actually talked about this cycle of faith himself, and he said, it starts with enchantment, and then I move into a place of disenchantment, and then I have to go into a place of re-enchantment, and then life continues. St. John of the Cross, who, was, who we know well because of uh, his writings on the dark night of the soul, these experiences that we have in Christian life where God seems like he's distant, this perception 
He used this word that we start with union with God. Then he said, then there's purgation. And then there's illumination. And then we go back to union. Other scholars talk about order, disorder, reorder. Other scholars talk about simplicity, complexity, to perplexity, and then back to harmony. And the cycle goes. And so throughout history, it doesn't matter what the language is, if it's called deconstruction, reconstruction, if it's called union, illumination, losing Jesus, finding Jesus, whatever you want to coin it, this is a natural cycle of faith. And for Mary, she lost Jesus. She had to rethink who he was, and then she had to continue on her journey of understanding who Jesus was. And throughout history, people who have followed Jesus have had the same Experience, And so here's the good news. If you're going through the season of deconstruction, if you know somebody who is, welcome to the life of faith. This is a process of growing in faith, of maturing in faith. This is spiritual growth. And this is not a merry-go-round. This is not just we go around the same thing every single time. It's actually more like a helix. So think of a spiral staircase or a screw, a bolt. So as you go around, you feel like, I've done this before, but you're actually moving further. You're moving up. You know, if we use a staircase analogy, or if it's a screw, you are going deeper and deeper and deeper every time it goes around. This is the cycle, the helix of faith. You're deconstructing, you're rethinking, and you're committing, like Mary, to treasure and ponder and wrestle and to continue going. And so you need to know, and I need to know, that this is a normal part of growth so that when it happens to us, we don't freak out and think this is the end of faith. There's reasons why we think that. We'll talk about that later. But this is a normal experience. I've experienced this throughout my life at different seasons in my life. I can remember going from high school to college, a classic time for people to deconstruct and dismantle. I did that as well. And you guys think, well, you, go to, you went to Bible college, you didn't go to secular college. I'll tell you, Bible college, people deconstruct just as much as they do in any other university or college. I can tell you that. Um, in fact, sometimes it's worse because they're, you know, you're looking at different ideas about faith and scripture and everything is way more complex than you thought it was. Uh, and so I went through a season as a college student where I didn't go to church for almost two years. You know, they don't get it. You know, here I am. Uh, the irony. Uh, they don't get it. Yeah. But this is a, something that sometimes happens with people as they go to college. They interact with different ideas, and then they think they have to differentiate from what they grew up with and create their own pathway, and they separate themselves from where they came from. I remember a, a period of deconstruction early on in ministry for me where I had a different thoughts about faith, different thoughts about the Bible, different thoughts about ministry. And as I started to, to do this pastor work, uh, it wasn't quite what I thought it would be. And it was different than what I thought it would be, and it left me in a place of questioning and doubt. I had an experience later on in later ministry uh, that was more on a personal crisis side and different challenges that I was experiencing that sent sent me into a, a phase of questioning too. This is part of the faith journey. The question is, do we give up and we see it as the end of the journey? Do we recognize that this is part of the cycle, the helix of faith? C.S. Lewis said, to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. I'm so glad for that statement. It's encouraging to me. 
To struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. When Mary pondered and she wrestled and she struggled, it, doesn't, it didn't mean that she didn't believe. It actually meant that she did believe and she wasn't willing to let that thing go. So she was willing to fight and wrestle and figure it out. And it would take her her lifetime. C.S. Lewis also said, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. What is C.S. Lewis talking about? He's talking about the cycle, this helix of faith. My idea of God is just that. It's an idea. It's my understanding. And it's not that it's not true, but it's limited. And this image, this idea I have of God is actually shattered repeatedly throughout my life and it's God himself that leads me through that process and so what if God was actually leading us through phases of deconstruction so that we could find him and re-understand him and grow deeper with him to go through the helix the cycle of faith again this experience of deconstruction or losing Jesus is a perception but it is part of our journey of understanding so when Jesus was 12 Mary lost Jesus, but it wasn't the only time that Mary lost Jesus. Years later, Mary would lose Jesus a second time, around the age 30, perhaps 32. One day, Jesus left Nazareth, and he went to listen to his cousin, John the Baptist, preach, and he was baptized by John in the, uh, in the Jordan River. And then he came back, and he went back to Nazareth, and he tried to preach the sermon back in Nazareth. And the end result of the sermon, everybody was amazed at first. But the end result, by the end of a sermon, is they tried to throw him off a cliff. That's a tough first sermon. Uh, Rough going for him. Uh, And so Jesus ends up moving on from that place and going to Capernaum, from Nazareth to Capernaum, on his own. And he's starting this earthly ministry, and he's leaving his hometown and his family, and he's moving on. And so he moves on, and so Mary, in that sense, lost Jesus. She was distant from Jesus, and she goes out searching for him with his family, with his brothers, with his brother Joseph, James, Judas, Simon, his sisters as well. And they all went from Nazareth to Capernaum to try and force him to come home because the text read that they thought he was out of his mind. So again, Jesus, 12 years old, at the temple. Mary didn't understand it. Joseph didn't understand it. They had to wrestle with it. Jesus, 30 years old, he's still doing things they don't understand. They still think Jesus is out of their mind. And they think Jesus needs to change. They think Jesus needs to change. But it's their understanding and their faith that needs to change. And so when they reached Capernaum, he was in the house. They think he's out of his mind. They're telling Jesus to come outside because they want to take control of him because they thought he was out of his mind. That's what the text says. And then Jesus says, you go tell those people that are waiting outside uh, who my true family is. My brothers, my sister, my mother, those are the people who obey the will of God in their lives. Man, that would have been hard for Mary the mom to hear, right? Jesus, or Mary lost Jesus. She pursues him. She finds him. And when she finds him, she has to rethink everything again. And Jesus is 30. And even this wouldn't be the last time that Mary would lose Jesus. Mary would lose Jesus one more time. Again, Mary would lose Jesus in Jerusalem. And again, Mary would lose Jesus for three days. She would lose Jesus on Good Friday. And the whole understanding of the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, was that he would rule, that he would reign forever. And this idea of God suffering, this was not what she understood. This was not what she expected. And so on Good Friday, 
Mary shows up and she's watching and she's lost Jesus. When she lost Jesus, she's watching and she doesn't understand this thing. And you can imagine she's pondering and she's wrestling. And eventually, three days later, she would find Jesus again after the resurrection. And then she would really have to rethink everything again. What looked like the end, what looked like death, was actually part of the helix and the cycle of the gospel redemptive story. And so this tells you and I that we hit these stages in our journey of faith where it, for whatever reason it feels like death, it feels like loss, it feels like God's distance, it feels like everything you thought was true isn't true, you, everything is deconstructing and falling apart. But the resurrection story, the story of Jesus, is that death is not the end, it's simply a beginning. The story of reconstruction, of doubt, of questioning faith, if we understand it in the context of the gospel, in the context of the history of faith and the people of God and the church, is that it is also not the end, it's also not death, it's actually the beginning of more growth and more understanding and deeper understanding if we see it as a helix. How did Mary, the mother of Jesus, move to worshiping and following Jesus? That's one question. The other question, how did James, we know that James would end up being a pastor and leading the early church. How did James end up worshiping Jesus? We see throughout his life that they were trying to control him, that they didn't understand Jesus. They must have had to recalibrate, rethink, wrestle, ponder over and over and over again until it changed their life. And so, was, so must we. And so what about you? If you are struggling with faith and questions, you don't have all the answers, that's okay. It's actually natural and it's actually good. Deconstruction is not something to run away from or be afraid of. If we understand, if we, we take Mary's example that there's some things I'm going to cling to I'm not going to let go of. This is the key. Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God. He's King. There's a whole bunch of things that I don't understand. There's a whole bunch of things in my experience. There's a whole bunch of things about the Bible. There's a whole bunch of things in maybe in science. There's a whole bunch of things, you know, you fill in the blank. I'm, I don't understand it. You're in good company. But the question for you and I is, do we cling to Jesus? Do we continue to seek him and pursue him, even with our doubts and our questions? Do we understand that our doubts and our questions are necessary because you and I are not God? God is God. And so if God is God and we are not, then naturally there's going to be things that we don't get and we don't understand and we will have to rethink as we grow, as we grow in faith, as we grow as people of faith. Will you hang on and not let go? It can be excruciating. When people in your family feel like they're losing Jesus, it can be excruciating when you feel like you're losing Jesus. But please know that this is a perception and that Jesus has not changed, but we are changing. And as hard as it is, we can embrace change. So please be encouraged. You're not the first one. Keep going. It's not the last stop on a journey. It's actually just the next step on your journey. Won't you stand with me as we worship together? you think about that cycle of faith as we before we head into this last song if you could put yourself 
in that helix, in that cycle, where do you find yourself? Theological construction? Rethinking, just putting things back together? Do you find yourself in a place of doubting and questioning deconstruction? Do you find your place of honest seeking? There's nowhere on that cycle that's bad. Every part of that cycle is natural. But I want you to think about that as we kind of pray and, and close in worship here. So, Father, um, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are unchanging. Lord, we recognize that we change. We change physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. Our understanding and our perceptions change throughout our life. Lord, you know this. You created us this way. Lord, would you protect us from a culture that wants to hijack this idea of deconstruction and say that we're losing our faith? May you, over the next four weeks, infuse us with faith and help us to recognize that you have us on a journey. You have us on a journey. You're not afraid of our doubts or questions, Lord. The Bible's full of people expressing their doubts, their questions, their anger, their frustrations, their disappointments. Lord, you're not afraid of those things. And so, Lord, whether we're putting pieces back together, whether we feel like everything's falling apart, or whether we're in a season of seeking you and trying to find you and wondering where you are, Lord, would you increase our faith? Would you increase our tenacity like Mary? May we ponder, may we treasure, may we wrestle. May we not let go of the things that you have said are true, even if we have a hard time believing they're true. Lord, we trust. Trust in you and your unfailing love. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So, Lord, we, we say, great are you, Lord, as our perceptions change over time, um, you, you remain the same. I pray that you'd help us to, to rest in that this week, uh, that as we go, we can wrestle, uh, not with fear, but, um, but in a, a faithful doubting and a, a seeking for Jesus this week, Lord, and that we could find you and, and that cycle could continue. Yeah, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, you are dismissed. Have a great week. Bundle up. There are uh, going to be prayer teams here at the front. We invite you to come on down and receive prayer. And don't forget about Alpha. Uh, you still got a chance. Sign up. We'd love to see you there. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's super valuable. So you can do that at the Welcome Center or uh, online. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great week. Thank mm-hmm. you.